This episode contains descriptions of physical and emotional abuse. If you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Previously on Gund. These people will sink their claws into the public schools or, you know, anywhere that they can. They're like vampires almost. They'll just find their prey and just suck and suck and suck. I did get in contact with her and I did find out that she had no idea of any long-term outcomes for any of the facilities that she was recommending to people. When you just do a search on wilderness therapy and you just Google that, it's scary as anything. You're like, why, who in the world would send their child there? That sounds awful. Wilderness, it's a lot of dirty work. It is, it is an intense experience, but, you know, it's a lot better than what it used to be. It's like a summer camp. You know, I would definitely recommend, uh, you know, just at least t- check them out. Welcome back to Gund, a podcast about the troubled teen industry. In today's episode, we'll hear from a survivor of Straight Incorporated, one of the earliest models for the structure of TTI schools and programs throughout the United States. By the time Rob was 15 years old, he had already stolen three cars. His family moved to a new state when he was 11, which was also the age that he had his first drink. And from that point on, to hear him tell it, his life was hurtling downhill. I was uh, 15 years old, and I was on my third Grand Theft Auto, and I was in my life had gone from from 11 years old. Literally four, four and a half years later, my life was just completely spun out of control. Rob and his siblings quickly found themselves in with the wrong crowd, and very shortly after the move, things had gotten hairy. Within six or eight months, my whole family just spiraled out of control. I had been in court and had uh, judges tell me, you're, you know, you're, you're very close to being put away in jail till you're 18, that kind of thing. And then um, I just knew my life was, was messed up and I, did, and I knew it had spiraled out of control. I wasn't like that three or four years ago. The friends Rob had made in his new town were on a similar path, having run-ins with drugs, alcohol, and the law. His sister and brother, too, were struggling with alcohol, partying, and generally landing in harm's way. By 15, Rob knew he was messing up. People in his life, the cops, the judges, not only were others telling him he was headed in a dangerous direction, but he saw it himself. Rob needed help. He wanted help. I got in trouble with a deal with a stolen car, and uh, I was gonna—I was literally packing a bag to leave. And then I just—it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I sat down on my bed. I start crying. I just got up and I walked down the street to the house where I had taken this car. And I walked in, I I knocked on the door, walked in, talked to him, and I admitted it and talked to him. And I ended up, long story short, I ended up uh, going back home and he made contact with my parents. Help found Rob in an unusual way. A few months earlier, the mother of one of Rob's friends had shown up to their house with a recent photo of his friend Danny. In the photo, the scraggly, punk-rock-looking kid Rob used to hang out with was smiling back at him, wearing a crew cut and a collared shirt, looking decidedly unlike the partner in crime that Rob had come to know. One of my my best friends, he was on a spiraling downward path as I was. And one night I, I answered the door and his mom was there. And she came over to see my mom and brought me a picture of him. And he, the last time I'd seen him, he was hippie, long hair, burned out looking, all that kind of thing. 
and now he's got his hair cut short, parted on the side. He has some like polo shirt on and he's smiling. And I'm like, what the hell? And she sat there and kept talking to my mom. So I'm looking at this picture and couldn't believe it. And it was weird. It was, it was, uh, it scared me, intrigued me. I was like, what, what the hell is going on? How, Cause it was just a drastic change in him. Danny's mom had shown up that day to talk Rob's parents into sending him to the same program that had straightened Danny out. And on the night that Rob broke down and confessed to stealing that car, he actually asked them to do just that. And I've got a slightly different, probably, story than most of them as far as going in there and how I went in. I actually asked my parents to put me into it. And I had the, I guess, awareness, self-awareness or whatever to know that I was heading down a path that was going to lead to very, very bad stuff, prison, death, all that kind of stuff, and saw that. It wasn't just people were telling me that. I asked, I literally asked my parents to put me in the rehab that Danny was in. And so, on February 13th, 1982, Rob signed himself into a program called Straight Incorporated as the second boy to enter the new Cincinnati branch of the program. Now, Rob's story is unique. In countless hours of research and several conversations with other survivors of Straight Incorporated, he was the only person I came across who had gone into it voluntarily. The vast majority of children and teens who found themselves in straight throughout the decades had been taken there against their will. Many were lied to, coerced, or threatened into joining the program by their parents or by the courts. Of course, Rob knows many of those kids, and he acknowledges that his experience, both in how he got there and how he thinks about it decades later, is unusual. Most kids that went in there when it had no idea they were going, they were lied to about where they were going to and uh, fought going in and didn't want to be there. Rob even remembers some kids in the program who seemingly needed no intervention at all, who had been roped in. There were a few people that were in there that I know that shouldn't have been in there. They were, they just got, they just got kind of lassoed in because their brother or whatever was in there. And there was a guy that I was in there with, Brad, he should have been in there. And his brother, Sean, was... God dang, that kid was like 12 years old when he went in. And he shouldn't have been in there. So what was Straight Inc., this program that had seemingly smoothed the rough edges of the Danny that Rob once knew? When the program was founded in 1976, it was billed as a drug rehab for young people. With more than 40 locations across 18 states, Straight held youth aged 12 to 20 in warehouses and put them through an increasingly expensive, all-encompassing rehabilitation program. The founder and director of The Seed is Art Barker. He has no credentials to speak of. The foundation was originally conceived as a replacement for The Seed, a Florida youth drug rehab that had closed after its technique of attack therapy was compared in a U.S. Senate report to North Korean brainwashing tactics. Through the courts or a teacher, parents find this place. It's called The Seed, and it's unlike anything you've ever seen. Though its founders, Mel and Betty Sembler, said that Straight was officially unaffiliated with The Seed, scream therapy, known in straight lingo as a rap session, was the central exercise in the program. Rob remembers periods of time throughout the two years he spent in Straight where rap sessions were a daily occurrence. It was daily. Raps in the morning and guys' raps and um, evening raps and all that kind of stuff. In a rap session, straight students would congregate in a room at the warehouse and prepare to yell, scream, and emote to express everything from anger to shame to regret. 
Topics of the sessions ranged from program rules to students' recent or past wrongdoings to childhood trauma to family discord. The group of students, anywhere from 50 to upwards of 200, would do something called motivating in order to be chosen to speak. Motivating meant pumping your hands in the air, frantically waving your arm as hard as you possibly could in an effort to be called on. But you didn't really want to be called on. Because when a student is called on, it begins the screaming. The yelling. The accusations. The vitriol. Students were encouraged to pick out each other's flaws and scream them at each other. The more brutal, the louder, the closer it cut to the heart, the better. Oh yeah, they were uh, they were brutal, and you got attacked. <laughs> you were, you, that's what I mean. You're scared. You're motivating. You're motivating to get called on, but really, for the most part, you generally don't want to get called on. <laughs> Rap sessions were adrenaline-fueled, cacophonous, violent spectacles. You're going berserk and crazy, acting like it's your, it's, it's your last chance to ever speak in your life. That's how you're, you're motivating. But you really don't want to talk. <laughs> Much of the social control imposed on kids in straight came from the fear of being called out in a rap session. Day in and day out, survivors say their every move, their every thought, was conducted in the shadow of being called on or called out. You're always worried about somebody saying something. You're paranoid as all get up. I can remember going into the building, and before I would walk through the doors of the group room, I would hyperventilate, get a bunch of air, and, and rub my cheeks to get some color in my cheeks and put on this big fake-ass smile and walk in like I was like I, I had just been like that for the last whatever hour. Students were rewarded for being the most brutal with their call-outs, for being the most passionate with their screams. In the pressure cooker of a rap session, it was every person for themselves. You're really falling in line. And one of the things you learn to do is it makes you stronger and a better person in there to be confrontative to people. And so you learn to do that. You learn to just jump on board. When somebody starts getting confronted, you confront them too. And you'll actually, it's almost like you get points. Students were compelled to exaggerate their struggles, even fabricate stories of how bad things had gotten, to add to the game. The worse your story and the worse the things you could draw out of others, the better. I asked Rob if he remembers people souping up their stories for the benefit of a rap session. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of those people did that, and myself included. You did it from ego, because you're in there and you literally want to tell war stories to impress these people. That's very, that was very common. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people did that. Even though they had legitimate problems, they're still making up bullshit to play the game. Because the more you would talk about something, the more you'd come out and talk about something, cry about something, you got brownie points for it. People would lie about shit just because they got further down the path of the program. Rob remembers students whose struggles with drugs, alcohol, or the law were so minute that they barely existed. Even they played the game. 24-7 all the way around at home and when they're in the group, anytime they say that and talk, they make sure that they had, you know, this person that's on board that, hey, you're a druggie. And there was one girl in there, I remember, I remember her, she was uh, talking, one of her things she would talk about, she was, uh, she abused aspirin. 
<laughs> Strait's treatment model, which consisted of five stages, emphasized peer pressure as a rehabilitation technique, pitting kids against each other in rap sessions at home and throughout their days at the program. In an effort to eradicate all negative influence from teens' lives, Strait began treatment by isolating children and teens from family, friends, and culture. It was Strait that pioneered the level system we talked about in Episode 3, a system that TTI facilities still use today. The first phase of the program, which lasted a minimum of two weeks and often for as long as a year, was called humbling. Newcomers in the first phase had no music, no media, no clothing other than that which was issued by the facility. No TV, no reading, no school. Many remember being led around the facility by their belt loops, intended to demonstrate to them that they had lost control of their lives. Progression through the program would eventually earn you back the privileges of reading, going to school, and talking with your family. But that progression frequently took upwards of a year to achieve. Newcomers were the pariahs of straight and under the strictest supervision. Survivors I spoke with who declined to be on tape remember being restrained by larger students and staff sitting on their arms, legs, and chest. Rob remembers other abuses, too. They do bullshit in there with sleep deprivation, water deprivation, and food deprivation. And there's some physical stuff. And it's it's not the kind of thing where you're going to all of a sudden, yeah, I'm going to really grow and I'm in a loving place. You're scared all the damn time. In the second phase, students can spend nights in their own homes but only if staff members have decided on a completely subjective basis that the student is ready. After one journalist for the St. Petersburg Times followed a student through the program for a year, he wrote in his report, quote, Only when a patient is feeling worthless and miserable is he considered to be making progress, end quote. Often, kids progress through the program only once they realize that the quickest way to get out was to submit. Put your head down, make as few waves as possible, and get yourself out. You really are kind of playing a game. You are, you're scared, and you're a kid, and you're not going to fight back. You become submissive, because they've got so much control over you. Every kid in there is going to play a game. Every kid in there is going to play a role to, to make it through. You're a kid. You're not going in there on your own volition. If staff decide that a student is further compliant, they move to phase three, which sees them returning to school, starting a job, and spending only weekends and evenings at straight. And then, at some point during phases three to five, students become staff. Straight's model of peer pressure-fueled treatment is a kind of embodiment of the Stanford Prison Experiment wherein students, sometimes those who have only been in the program for a few months, become the ones wielding the power that was used against them. Straight staff was made up almost entirely of students, many of whom were still teenagers. Having been beaten down by the program, many kids jumped at the chance to feel a sense of control over their peers. So most of the staff were were graduates of the program, and that's where I say that the whole thing with the ego got crazy. You would get these kids that would run through the program. They didn't have any other training besides that. These people would come in and rip your ass up one side and down another. They don't have any damn qualifications for shit. And there was so much of what was say coming out of their mouths that was just fueled by just impersonal ego shit. It wasn't, wasn't there to help. It was there to knock that person down, cut that person down. 
maybe that person, maybe that person needed to be talked to a little bit sternly here and there. But man, the way that they would be brutal, would be brutal. A lot of the staff would be 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, that kind of stuff. Um, you had a couple of them that were maybe in their 30s. And even the younger, like the staff members that were 19, 18, 19, that's a kid. And they would get the group fired up to confront somebody. And it was just like a show of how well you could confront them. Rob was in straight for only three months before becoming what was known as an old comer. When it happened, he was down for the cause, ready to whip the newcomers into shape. At the time, I was all on board to, for self-growth, and, and I was playing the game and believed it, and, and I was uh, trying to get them on board and help them and get them up through their phases, you know? A typical day at the program saw a student arriving as early as 6 in the morning and leaving as late as midnight. Straight was not congregate care in the traditional sense, which is to say students didn't live at the straight facility, but they also didn't live at home. Straight students lived with each other's families. When a student arrives at straight, they are placed with an old comer with whose family they will live for the duration of the program. Their assigned old comer becomes a chaperone, a mentor, often a tyrant. You're never actually living there at the building. You've got a foster family that you live with from the first day you're there. And you'll be on first phase and you're with somebody who's called an old comer. They're on second or third phase, usually third phase and up. And um, you'll go home to their house, but you're at the building. If they're in, on third phase, which is where they can go back to school, they'll have to take you into the building and you'll be in the building from 6 a.m. until 9 o'clock that night or 10 o'clock that night. And on Friday and Monday nights, it had been midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning because of uh, open meeting nights. So two nights a week, you'd be there for 16, 17, 18 hours. Even when students reached phase three and were allowed to return to their own homes, their homes were full of other straight students. Rob remembers his family's two-bedroom apartment being made to accommodate 17 straight students. We had an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment, and I had to do a complete a final count, but I could do an exact count for you, but I believe the number was 17. We had 17 people living in the two-bedroom apartment. Oh my, um, like 17 people from straight? Yes. Oh including my, my parents. Me, my brother, my sister. We had a foster brother. We all had newcomers. I would have a, a newcomer on each hand. If you had a hand, you had a newcomer in it. And they'd be home with us. Yeah, we, it was crazy. There were a lot of families that were, that, were, that were like that. For the 27 months that Rob was in the program, straight became his and his family's entire life. Again, everybody, you just get on board. It's an incredibly drastic program, all-encompassing, and I mean that to the 10th degree. So if the parents are going to put you in there, they just get on board with doing it. They do what they got to do. Houses have to be security um, set by the program. You've got to have different locks on all the doors and windows and stuff like that. It's, I, I, think the parent, I think it's a pain in the ass, and I think, honestly, the parents probably hate it. And for Rob, straight became a family affair. His sister and brother were also put into the program. His brother for struggles with alcohol and his sister for drinking and partying. My brother and sister were both in there. I was the first one in. I was the first one in and the last one out. And they both went, they both went through it. During the time Rob and his siblings were in straight, it was a booming business. As parents paid into the program, it grew to more locations in more states. It was the 1980s, the height of the war on drugs, and Strait was getting glowing media attention from the likes of 60 Minutes. 
Straight Incorporated is a drug treatment program for children from 12 to 22. Although there are qualified professionals on hand, most of the drug therapy is conducted by other kids at different stages in the program. Straight has won the praise of experts in the field and can point to many success stories like the one we filmed at a recent meeting of the Kiwanis Club in Bethesda, Maryland. Nancy Reagan, by then famous for her efforts to stymie what was seen as the rising tide of child drug addicts with programs like Dare and Just Say No, even visited a straight ink facility. Along with Princess Diana, Reagan and several other famous faces gave the program her seal of approval. Rob and a friend, who are still in touch today, were there when Nancy Reagan toured the facilities in 1985. I was there with Nancy when she was there. Actually, the guy that I went to... uh, Nepal with Greg, he uh, was assigned to her as her guide, as her, he was on fifth phase at the time, and he was assigned with her. She was there for open meeting and the Secret Service and all that were there. Though she stopped short of an official endorsement, Nancy often cited straight as her favorite rehab program, being one of the few that allowed young people and didn't rely on government funding. Perhaps she said this before she knew about Strait's insurance fraud, if she ever did, and perhaps she was unaware of the government grants it had received. But I digress. I asked Rob if the Strait ink that Nancy saw, that the country saw, was real. Did they clean anything up for her arrival? Did they polish themselves for the press and the public? Yeah, I remember that there was a church that was like a a sixteenth of a mile away from the building, and I remember they took a ton of us most of us, and they they took us out of the building and brought us over there and had us in there. Um, I I think especially the bad kids, the ones that were real misbehaviors, they kept them out. Before survivors began to speak out, Strait was blessed with glowing media coverage and celebrity, even presidential endorsement. But the licensing conflicts and lawsuits that were popping up as early as 1978 eventually caught up with the program. Repeated instances of regulation violation on issues of school attendance, false imprisonment, and coercion drove Strait out of several states. In 1983, Strait lost a lawsuit brought by a 20-year-old who claimed to have been held captive there. In 1984, the state of Florida confirmed that 13 Strait students had been held in the program against their will, and 15 had enrolled under duress. In 1986, Strait settled a suit for malpractice, negligence, false imprisonment, assault, battery, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and fraud. The suit found evidence of starvation, citing a case in which staff placed a young child on a diet of only peanut butter and water as punishment for failing to admit that she had done drugs she had in fact never touched. By the time Strait shuttered its rehab facilities in 1989, it had settled more than $15 million in lawsuits. Today, no more straight rehab facilities exist, but the Straight Foundation was reinstated in 1992 and renamed Drug Free America Foundation three years later. It has lobbying, campus, and workplace divisions, which remain in operation. DFAF has received government funding and participates in the UN's annual special session. It's seen the likes of Florida Governor Jeb Bush and DEA Administrator Karen Tandy on its advisory board. The facilities may be closed, but the straight ink umbrella is still very much present in the zeitgeist, a wolf in sheep's clothing. I found Rob from an archived version of a defunct website from 2006. In the guestbook section, there are messages from hundreds of survivors. 
In the last couple years, the troubled teen industry survivor community on social media, especially TikTok, has grown to include hundreds of recent survivors and activists. But finding survivors of programs like Straight is harder. Not only because many are in their 50s and far removed from the allure of TikTok, but honestly, there were many times I would start trying to hunt someone down from a post they had made years ago on this website that no longer exists reverse searching their email, digging through home listings and LinkedIn pages, that I would land on an obituary. I, of course, don't know any of these people, but something about starting at a short message requesting support, a little blurb that hid behind it many years of trauma, and a half hour later staring down an obituary, sometimes for someone as young as 30 or 40, hit me like a truck. I was at that hell hole in St. Pete in 1991. I was abused on a daily basis. Those memories are still alive. Damn you! It is with great sadness that Paul's family announces his passing. He will be lovingly remembered by his wife and his four children. I have lasting effects from those monsters who tried to steal my adolescence from me. I was there 84 to 85. Is there anyone out there who remembers me? I turned 16 in that hellhole. I'm now 37. Daniel passed away July 2nd. He loved fishing and hunting and will be remembered for his storytelling. I mean, I know him. I've seen him. I think there were a lot of people in there that had issues, that had, that had drug issues. I know some have died, uh, committed suicide. Pretty much all of the straight survivors I spoke with were bitter, angry, resentful, as they have every right to be. But Rob, Rob was different. Eventually, I found his current social media accounts, and I saw a man with a flourishing business and a positive outlook. Honestly, it felt a little creepy reaching out to someone who had so clearly been able to build his life beyond and outside of straight, only to request that he re-engage with the experience. Hello? Emma? Hi, I I appreciate you giving me a call. Um, When I reached out on Instagram, it didn't occur to me that because it was a business page that someone else could answer. So I'm really sorry for that. I didn't want to... No, 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 it's okay. Sorry. She knows, the person who does all that knows me well, so she knows everything. I'm I'm an open book to people for the most part. I had reached out to Rob on his business page, and someone who was not Rob responded... I was horrified that I may have exposed something about him to someone he had met in this new phase of his life. But as Rob and I spoke, I learned that he was one of the only survivors whose feelings about straight are not so black and white. Yeah, so, so I'm still good friends with two, two guys that I went in there with, and we've been buddies since we met in there, in straight. So I don't feel encumbered by straight whatsoever. He told me that while straight was brutal, elements of the program did whip him into shape. Now, did it ultimately have an effect on the way that I've developed? Absolutely, it did. Well, sure, it did. Did it have a negative effect? Absolutely, it did in some ways. Did it have some positive effect also? I think it probably did. Yeah, it taught me some stuff that I didn't know before. So, yeah, I would say it definitely did. And so I focus on the good of that. And every once in a while, you know, I, I could talk myself into a little heated mental discussion about straight, but I generally don't anymore because it's not worth it. I, don't, I want to be happy in life. That's it. And I can, I can control that. It starts with the way that I think, you know? With every horror story Rob told, there was a qualifier. 
From Rob, I didn't hear as much of the hatred that so many others held. He credits Strait for giving him structure, for teaching him what he was capable of, and ultimately for keeping him alive. It gave me tools that I've used the rest of my life and I've built on and developed. It also had some dysfunctional shit that went on. It's got negative and positive effects on me. No question, Strait was cruel. But for Rob, making it through was what gave him a sense of accomplishment and a confidence that he didn't have before. And I was proud of myself that I did it. I mean, it was a, it was a hard-ass program. I was, uh, and I felt kind of like, a, a, I don't know, a bit of a, somehow some sort of a, a warrior in that I had, I had accomplished that and made it through. No bullshit little 30-day pussy-ass rehab would have worked for me. I was too, I was too messed up. And if somebody would have put me in some rehab for 30 days, I would have been out and I would have been screwed up again quickly. The structure was definitely needed, especially for me. I'll talk to you just about myself. It was definitely needed. And that was beneficial for me. The repetitiveness of everything being the same every day. I asked him when he left, when he emerged back into the world, was he afraid? No, I felt good. I felt strong. I felt powerful. Now, I had to learn how to live, and I'll be honest, there was, you're thrown back out into the society, and you've been brainwashed, and so you act and talk and speak like this little straightling, and it took me probably two, three, four years to kind of get out of that a little bit. You're just so conditioned to talk and speak and act a certain way that, you know, when you get out of there, I wasn't, I don't, I don't, I wasn't scared. I was very ambitious very, you know, cocky and all that kind of thing. But I was, uh, I mean, I made it through that damn place. It was hard. I ran away and quit and got brought back. And I mean, it was a rough two and a half years of my life and I was young and I did. And, but I was, I looked at myself kind of as a fighter and I always had, and I just, it was one of the things that I fought through. And I, you know, when, when I got out of that place and after a while, and I did even then I had real resentments towards that place and towards people in it. And I had to deal with, I, I just chose to deal with it differently than I think a lot of those people have. You're not always going to get satisfaction out of something. So does that mean you walk around angry and pissed off? Those people seem to be doing that. I'm not going to do that. I hid it for a long time. Hid it and lied about it. To the point where I made up stories about that period of my life that I could, I filtered in with other things that I was doing at that point in my life. So I didn't have to talk about that. It took years. It really did take a number of years before I, I got legitimately comfortable I think probably with myself. It took time, he said, to reacclimate to the world. But now, 12 years sober and doing what he loves, Rob looks back on straight with more nuance than many. When I got out of there, I had a lot of good and ambitious stuff in me, but I still had a lot of that bad stuff in me. And, and, and probably I think a lot of that came from my ultimate self-doubt of myself. So I had to develop those things through getting in trouble a couple of times and just all, just starting to recognize and be aware that it's not the kind of person I want to be. You just start putting things behind you and moving forward. Now, honestly, I mean, a lot of my ability to just do that may have come from that whole thing with strength and my ability to pick myself up on my bootstraps, so to speak, and move forward. I don't know. Um, I don't know. If, but I, I don't I don't know. Um, how it helped me. I don't, it's, you're 16 and 17 and 18 years old and you're under a hellacious amount of crazy ass rules. And the thought, I mean, growing, it's a weird thing to describe. You're not really growing. It's, 
I don't know. I can't, I don't, I don't know how to answer that besides that with you. Some things linger. He told me he finds himself struggling with authority. As he got sober, he found Alcoholics Anonymous to be too reminiscent of straight. And yet, he says he often feels uncomfortable in survivor spaces because he still holds a sort of gratitude for the program, or at least for his ability to make it through. You've got people who are really um, mentally and emotionally stuck on the trauma of that place. And you've got ones that aren't. And if you're not on board with them, you're kind of an outcast. I felt very defensive in the, in the crowd that I was in because I'm the only one who says that. I'm the only one who talks the way that I talk about straight. Everybody else can't stay in the place and hates it. I am in no position to judge the way that anybody processes their experience. But talking to Rob about his life today, about how he turned what could very well have been a devastating experience into a positive, it gave me hope. To me, it's just, it's a hard, that's a, that's a man, that's a losing way to live. And that stuff just keeps you in fear. And it keeps you doing what you they want you to do. It keeps you playing the game. It keeps you playing that role that you're in. It gave me hope for the recent survivors and for the kids who are in any of the hundreds of TTI facilities that exist today. For his part, Rob hasn't followed the evolution of the industry since he got out of straight. He focuses on his business, his passions, his life. I asked him near the end of our call if he had any thoughts on the way that Straight Inc. was used as a model for so many other programs so many years later. One thing, I don't know what the difference is between what they've got now and what they had then. I don't think that there's these abusive rehabs like that now anymore with these kids, is there? You can't spank kids, you can't do shit with kids. How could they be abusing these kids in these rehabs? His is a reasonable assumption. Since the era of Straight, since the fallout from its survivors coming forward, Surely, changes must have been made. I wasn't sure how to tell Rob that not only have the practices of straight been replicated for decades, but that the industry has only grown. Straight Incorporated planted the seed. And for decades, the tree has been growing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gooned. For more information about Straight Incorporated, head to patreon.com slash goondpodcast. Remember to rate, review, and follow Gooned wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out goondpodcast.com for more information. Gooned is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Original artwork was created by Sam Doe. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. Thank you to all the amazing survivors, activists, researchers, former staff, families, experts, and everyone else who lent their stories to this podcast, both anonymous and otherwise.